Welcome to the 402nd episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. Today I'm going to talk about broccoli, child abuse, and walking and how they all could happen, maybe relate. Uh, first of all, I'll get into what's been going on in my life. It's hot and humid in Florida. Papaya trees are blooming, nothing much else. Um, have some peppers, you know, not too exciting in the garden front, more like preparing the soil for the fall planting season. I am growing chia seed microgreens, though. You know, when um, at Christmas time, when they talk about the chia pets, they're chia seeds and they grow into microgreens. However, the ones that you buy that look like something are typically treated with some sort of toxin, so you don't want to get a chia seed pet and eat it, most likely. But um, the greens look really good, and it's yet another way to get your omega-3 fatty acids in by topping your salads with chia seed microgreens. So I thought that was uh, a little bit fun. Most of you have probably seen on the national news that here in Southwest Florida in Lee County, which is just about a half hour, 45 minutes from here, uh, husband and wife are on trial for murder. Um, and the headlines read, uh, basically, child abuse through a vegan diet led to the death of a child. Uh, and they're being on trial. And uh, I think the woman was already convicted of murder uh, because of child being of small stature and malnourished, and she passed away. Um, I am not defending child abuse in any form, for starters. However, the press ran with a vegan diet as being the cause of child abuse, not how this woman raised her children, uh, or this family raised their children. We know from studies in third world country, when you give a child enough calories, they get enough macronutrients, regardless of what you give the calories, what the calories come from for the most part. So um, adequate calories from fruit and vegetables are more than enough to assure um, proper nutrition for, for a child, um, especially if whole grains and some fats are involved. So I mean, a vegan diet is not child abuse. Um, an unhealthy diet is child abuse, and that can be in the form of a vegan diet if their child is not getting proper calories and proper nutrients. And I think um, perhaps there's a little bit more to a plant-based diet for a, for a child um, that you have to think about it uh, a little bit more because a child doesn't necessarily eat the quantity that an adult eats. It's one of the reasons why kids can survive on a fast food diet for um, quite some time is because it's so high in calories and then supplemental nutrition. It's like when you give dogs kibble, um, it's really bad quality food, but there's enough nutrients sprayed on it um, that they can survive for a while. It's calorie dense. So if any mammal gets enough calories, they can typically survive, but not necessarily thrive. In a plant-based diet, again, um, calories tend to be less, especially if it's in uh, you know, a lower fat variety. The other thing is that you need to prepare it. So if people aren't assuring that the child is getting enough food or a variety, if the child happens to be picky, then you can get into a little bit of, of trouble. 
but that is in no way um, saying that a plant-based diet is not acceptable for a child. Um, just like any human, um, I, I don't believe that a, a diet of fast food and takeout food is healthy. You can survive on it because you get enough calories, and when you get enough calories, you tend to get enough macronutrients and supplements and all that kind of thing. But, it, but again, it's, it's not healthy in the long run. It just keeps you from dying because you're getting enough calories. But the press just really ran with, you know, um, vegan diets being poor and, you know, only a biochemist could figure out how to feed their child. Um, in reality, again, uh, if you cook at home and there were mashed, you know, if you get your child fruits and vegetables and whole grains, mashed potatoes, avocado, some, you know, good oils, um, it's pretty easy to, to take things um, and get enough nutrients in to make a child thrive. Uh, and actually be healthy because you're building an immune system that's actually healthy as opposed to um, making them inflammatory from the get-go. We know that dairy is meant for cows, and when children are given a lot of cow's milk dairy, there's a lot of allergies formed, the growth hormones, um, the estrogens cause more acne, um, quicker um, development, and uh, increase the risk of insulin-dependent diabetes, increase the risk of acne, autoimmune disease, um, obesity. And, you know, if we want to throw stones, if you're feeding your child sugary fast foods and they're obese, they're developing chronic diseases, lifestyle diseases at a young age, I believe that's also a form of child abuse. Um, and it's a form of child abuse, again, in the not knowing aspect. So I think because of lack of understanding and lack of education, people get in trouble on both, both fronts. The problem is with excess, you can survive, but with not enough of, that's when people get into trouble and it becomes more apparent um, that the child is, is not thriving. But we know that people uh, that feed their child's high sugary, high fat processed, chemically laden food, their IQ is not as good, their brain development is not good, they're more susceptible to infections. So again, they're not thriving, but it's easier to survive when there's adequate calories. So it, it was a shame that that wasn't addressed, and it's just you throw vegan diet under the bus, and, you know, it's more, um, you know, it's like it's another reason to go out and get fast food and, you know, cheap food and SpaghettiOs and all those other things to... Um, it, it just justifies that behavior for the most part, which is, is very sad. Just to drive the point home just a little bit, if you look at a medium McDonald's French fries, there actually are only 5.6 milligrams of vitamin C. We need 70 milligrams a day. I guess if you put ketchup on them, you can bump that up. However, there are 15 grams of fat, 43 grams of carbohydrate, four grams of fiber, five grams of protein, 260 milligrams of sodium, 320 calories total. So 42% of McDonald's french fries actually come from fat. So it's hard to be calorie deficient if your kid eats french fries. But are they thriving? No. If your child eats a plant-based diet, one thing they are getting that they're not getting in a standard American diet is fiber. And fiber is going to feed your good gut microbes in order to develop a good immune system in your child.
when you eat processed foods or actually any of the cereals in the cereal aisle for the most part, they're genetically modified corn and soy products, wheat products, so that you get, your child would be getting a dose of glyphosate that actually destroys their gut microbes. So if you're eating cereal for breakfast and chicken nuggets with 37 ingredients, only one of which being chicken for lunch, associated with genetically modded soybean oil, other fats that they're fried in, other preservatives, very little fiber uh, in, in, in the lunch. Again, unless you probably have some french fries, you get a, you're a couple grams. And then follow that up with dinner, um, you know, with SpaghettiOs that are genetically modified, uh, wheat products, genetically modified, or not genetically modified, but heavily pesticided tomato products most likely, um, doesn't do much to um, improve the health of your child. For children that are picky, a smoothie is a great idea to add in fruits and vegetables. So any child, even if they're on the standard American diet, if you can start to introduce a smoothie, uh, and you can make it colored, you know, so it can be purple, it can be, it can be red with strawberries, it can be yellow with mango or, um, you know, different colors of green, uh, depending on pineapple and, and uh Greens make a really cool shade of green. You can do army colored with, uh, you know, more vegetables, or you can hide the color altogether, but it's a great way to get nutrients into children. If they're not eating much, you can add, um, you know, a little bit of uh, oatmeal into that, so that can increase the caloric density. You know, using soy milk uh, increases the protein content and fat content. Um, so, and a lot of the, uh, the um, milks are now supplement it with vitamin D, just like cow's milk is supplemented with vitamin D. Cows don't actually produce vitamin D. They don't see the light of day uh, anymore. So everything is given vitamin D. So it's no different in soy or almond milk than it is in cow's milk. The other thing to look at is um, school starting. So a lot of kids have Lunchables and um, that follow a standard American diet. So I looked up turkey Lunchable. Um, most of you realize, but probably a lot of people don't realize, that turkey lunch meat um, is just as bad as ham or any other um, deli meat, uh, processed meat with respect to nitrates and carcinogens. But if you take a turkey lunchable, it has 16 grams of fat, 330 calories. Uh, there are 30 milligrams of carbohydrate. There are no vitamin C in a lunchable, so you're going to have to have some other source. There's only one gram of fiber, 17 grams of sugar. Um, there's 1.8 grams of iron, so that's a little bit, um, but there's seven grams of saturated fat, and there's even trans fat in the ham uh, Lunchable. So again, these foods aren't, aren't healthy for kids either. Uh, you know, an alternative um, would be pita pockets stuffed with tofu, seasons a variety of different way, avocado, you can put a little bit of greens in there, you can make... Um, sloppy joes with jackfruit or lentils. So there's a lot of different ways that um, you can make a, a lunch for a kid uh, without having to have processed lunch meats uh, or processed meats with genetically modified products. The bottom line comes down to as far as education goes. Rather than in today's world, we 
harass someone, try to take their kids away, or shame them for feeding their kids a certain way, or perhaps even, you know, as far as even I said, that it's a form of child abuse that kids are overweight. Perhaps we need to do more to educate uh, people and uh, try to find some middle ground um, that we can help people to learn a little bit more about nutrition. And as physicians, not poo-poo what people eat, but just, you know, make some, some good scientific suggestions. You know, watching movies such as What the Health, Game Changers, those are, those are good things that, you know, you can get a lot of ideas and um, start to realize that you can eat plant-based and still be strong and still be big and, you know, what to look for and, and also to, you know, to make sure that you're getting all the nutrients that you need but rest assured that if you're getting the calories that you need, most of the time you're pretty close to getting the nutrients that you need. So what happens if you have too many nutrients and you gain a bunch of weight as an adult and you start to get glucose intolerance and the first thing you do, you go to the doctor and you get put on uh, medications and typically the first medication you get put on is something like metformin that decreases glucose production by the liver. Uh, you may get put on a medicine that stimulates insulin release from the pancreas. You might even get put on a medication that decreases um, both or that increases insulin secretion, decreases uh, liver glucose production, and it delays gastric emptying or delays stomach emptying so you feel full and you actually lose weight. Weight loss will result in better glycemic control, but there's only so much weight that people are going to lose without changing what they eat. So even if you're nauseated, you may lose a little bit of weight, but it's not going to get you back down to where you need to go to not be a diabetic anymore. And chances are um, you might get used to the medication or fi figure out ways that it doesn't make you as um, nauseated. Just like when people have gastric banding or gastric bypass, they can't eat large meals or they feel awful, but they can eat small frequent meals. So the same thing, anything that delays gastric emptying, um, you can just eat smaller meals more often and people like to graze. Um, so that usually backfires over time. Or you can improve insulin resistance so that you can improve the uptake of glucose by the muscle and the liver by getting rid of the fat that's blocking the uptake. So getting rid of the fat that you're wearing and getting rid of the fat that you're eating is a quick way, well, not necessarily a quick way, but a, uh, the most efficient way of reversing diabetes. People always talk about, and of course you see it on the internet all the time, if you eat a candy bar, you have to do this much on a treadmill or you do this much on a treadmill to burn that off, so to speak. Your body's pretty smart at adjusting its metabolic rate so that the more you exercise, it, it kind of slows metabolism in other areas down so that your daily metabolic expenditure, the, the amount of calories that you expend every day stays pretty constant um, within um, you know, a, small, a small boundary you know, uh, of, of so many calories. However, when you exercise, you do increase the mitochondria or the metabolism organelles in the muscle. You can get more of them and make them more efficient. And the blood flow to the muscle becomes greater and the uptake of glucose will improve. So just going for a walk um, several times a day can improve glucose utilization by the muscle. The more you walk, 
the more muscle you have, the more mitochondria you have, and the better the glucose uptake. The better the glucose uptake, then you decrease the amount of insulin that's produced, and now you're starting to improve the secondary side effects of diabetes. So when you have high insulin levels all the time trying to push glucose into the cell, you also get the release of a lot of inflammatory factors um, and a lot of factors that increase your risk of cancer. So that by the, the overall goal is to decrease the amount of insulin needed to get the glucose into the cell. So there have been several studies that, and, and, I'll, and I'll put reference to them, that look at how much do you have to walk and when's the best time to walk. And if you eat, your glucose goes up, you swallow food and it's taken up by your bloodstream and then de and delivered to your tissues. So at about 30 to 45 minutes, um, 45 minutes is probably the average on uh, most of the studies is when the peak glucose occurs. So you, and it depends on what you eat. Um, you know, a lot of um, people talk about low glycemic index foods. Um, certainly if you eat pure sugar, your glucose will go up quicker than if you eat something that has fiber in it um, or that is delayed uh, in the uptake. But nevertheless, if you eat a meal, about 45 minutes, you'll see the peak glucose, and then it should start going down. In people that don't have insulin resistance, that goes back, your glucose go back to normal within the two-hour mark, so you're back down to your baseline. If you have glucose resistance, um, the glucose can't get into the cell, the glucose will stay in the bloodstream longer, and depending on how long it takes is a sign of how resistant your muscle and liver is to the uptake of glucose. Typically, we have people check at three hours that have diabetes to see where they are um, and if they're coming down. If they're not coming down substantially at three hours, then we know we're going to have to adjust their insulin or their medication so that we can get them eventually down to a normal uh, glucose at some point. The problem is that people that yo-yo, um, so they eat a lot and their glucose goes high and then it takes a long time for them to go down, those people have actually been shown to have more secondary complications of diabetes because they have higher glucoses that last longer. So even if they go down um, for fasting eventually after, in, after they take a medicine or, or over time, it's how much time that you spend with high glucoses that account for the secondary side effects. So certainly we don't want people to go up and stay up. Um, we don't want them to go too high after they eat. So we don't people want to go to 250 or 300. We want to adjust what they eat. So when we have people check their glucose after, at three hours, if it's very high, then we know right then we have to adjust what they're taking in or the kind of food that they're taking in because it's, it's causing a problem as, as far as glucose uptake. So the first thing we do is we look at is there any fat in the diet that's decreasing the ability of glucose to be taken up? So if you're wearing fat or there's fat blocking the cells already and you take in fat, it just stacks up on top. So we want to get that out first. But sometimes a combination of foods or the quantity of foods can also cause rises in the glucose that stay up per, for a persistently long time. So that's where it's important for us to get good feedback or to use that as a metric for people to look back and say, like, what combination of foods did I eat that caused that spike? The other thing that you can do is go for a walk. Now, I've said before, if you have significant vascular disease and you eat and then you go for a walk, it can make 
either your legs hurt more if the blood vessels to your legs are blocked or you can even get angina or chest pain because now your heart's pumping blood to your muscles as well as your stomach. So if you have significant blood vessel disease, especially cardiac disease, you should try to exercise on a pretty empty stomach for the most part and certainly not right after you eat. But it's been shown in some studies that in about 30 minutes, if you go for a nice leisurely walk after dinner, you can actually improve blood glucose control. So trying to do, and, and so we want people to get vigorous exercise in, doing that on an empty stomach, but an evening stroll or doing something around the house after dinner can markedly improve glucose control the rest of the evening. The other thing is how many steps. And again, when we start looking at glucose in how many steps, we know that the magic number is somewhere around 7,000. Uh, all comers, people that exercise less than 7,000 steps a day, um, which are consider, considered for the most part sedentary, have an increased mortality rate over those that get greater than 10,000 steps. And um, and again, don't do as well as people that between seven and 8,000 steps. So the, the benchmark is if you can get 10,000 steps, great. Don't fool yourself though. Don't assume that you're getting 10,000 steps. 10,000 steps are, uh, is about five miles. But again, it depends on the device and the accuracy of the device that you're using. Most studies that found that 10,000 steps were good were pedometers that, you know, they would uh, give out simple pedometers to people and have them uh, adjust to the, the length of their stride and use that. For an individual, if you measure your steps, no matter what your device is, if it's measuring how many steps you take, it's fairly accurate for you. It may not be completely accurate for the mileage dif distance, but it's, av it's active for how many steps you're actually getting. So if you get 10,000 steps in a day from a device, then you can correlate that with how did your glycemic or how did your glucose control change if you're a diabetic. And it's found that, again, the, the more steps you get, the better it helps with overall glucose control. And you can actually walk a glucose down, so to speak, if you just keep moving and not eating um, for a period of time. It doesn't have to be fast. Um, again, just a nice, steady exertion. I would recommend uh, some device that you can calibrate um, or that is pretty accurate as far as recording the number of step steps that you take. Phones typically are not a good uh, apps on phones because you don't always have your phone with you. It's not always on, so you're not getting credit for steps. And it doesn't really have a way to calibrate your length, your stride length. If you're wearing something on your wrist, you have a better opportunity. Even the pedometer that kind of bounces with your stride length and your leg are pretty, pretty good. There are foot pods that people can get and put on their shoes that are, that are accurate, that show how far people walk. But it's good feedback so that you know how many steps you're getting. It's encouraging so that you can set a goal and you actually attain those steps. So if it comes down to, you know in the afternoon and you haven't got your steps, this is a good time to say, okay, I've got to make some time to get my walk in or readjust the next day so that you can get your steps in. When we're talking about steps in diabetes control, it doesn't really matter how fast you go. It's just a matter of getting them in. We do know that training to go at a little bit of faster walk is, um, has been shown to improve cognitive function over time. 
So again, it, it uh, most likely relates to um, muscle and neuron control and feedback. And you know, again, we we used to think that you couldn't change uh, brain function, but there is a plasticity or a changing. Uh, ability of our neuro circuits that we can improve brain function and nerve function by doing an activity more and more. So um, walking and trying to train at a little faster pace or picking up the pace every once in a while. Uh, again, different terrains are also good because you're training balance at that time can, can help uh, cognition or memory. I had a patient with cancer that went to see the oncologist and was so proud that she was doing well eating a plant-based diet. And the first thing that the oncologist said to her was, oh, I don't like broccoli. So that was very encouraging. So what is it about cruciferous vegetables and broccoli that are actually good? So broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts are part of the Brachaceae type family. Mustard greens are also a part of that. And they have multiple anti-cancer properties that potentiate uh, or that help to uh, fight cancer from GI as well as breast and prostate. So as you would expect, they're loaded with fiber. They also have phytic acid and some soluble sugars, but they also have carotenoids, folic acid, vitamin C, vitamin E, tocopherols, sulfur, potassium, phosphorates. And they work a lot by uh, decreasing the damage that other cellular metabolism has produced, such as free radicals uh, and reactive oxygen, oxygen species. They decrease blood vessel growth into cancers. They help cancer cells or they help the immune system to actually um, attack the cancer cells and help them to, uh, you know, to what we call apoptosis or to die, the abnormal cells to die off, which are happening all over our bodies every day, but this can potentiate um, the riddance of bad cells. These veg vegetables also uh, contain quercetin. So quercetin is, you know, came to fame. Uh, we think of it as being from apples and onions and garlic. Um, it's good in the treatment of uh, COVID as far as allowing it, it acts about, it has some antiviral properties, allows the zinc to get in the cell, opens up the pathways uh, for antiviral uh, activities between, you know, the combination of zinc and quercetin. But it's found, it's, uh, quercetin is found uh, in high amounts in broccoli. Uh, it also inhibits the pathways uh, of some cat cancer cell um, division, so it can be very good. Uh, the carotenoids that are in um, broccoli and in these and related vegetables decrease H. pylori, so that's one of the methods that it decreases gastric cancer. But the problem with vegetables and people not really believing how they work and are they working is how do you reproducibly show that uh, broccoli decreases blood vessel growth into cancer? And a lot of the studies have run into trouble because if you change the properties of the plant, then some of these chemicals aren't released. And one of the enzymes um, that have to become activated by a compound called myrosinase. And this activation occurs when the plant is damaged either through cutting, breaking, or chewing. 
the pungent smell and what you know uh, turns some people off of broccoli and cabbages is actually um, the breakdown of isocyanates uh, in the sulfur compounds that are generated, which are also inflammatory uh, and anti-inflammatory mediators. But the active compound is markedly reduced if you boil the broccoli. Even frozen broccoli that has been parboiled loses a lot of its activity. Um, microwaving also decreases it. Boiling is the worst. 88% can be lost. Uh, steaming, 20% can be lost. Stir-frying, 36% can be lost. Um, but what you can do is act, add... Well, a couple of things. You can cut and let it sit for a little bit, fresh broccoli or fresh cabbage or fresh Brussels sprouts. So cutting them activates those enzymes. If you're making a soup, you can pulverize them raw first and then cook them because then they'll be activated. But if you have frozen broccoli or you have vegetables that you're, you're stir frying, adding mustard seed powder will do that activation for you and preserve some of those, those properties. Again, it takes me back to, you know, everybody's promoting at, you know, different kinds of green powders, but in the processing of the vegetable into the powders, most of those enzymes are, are lost and, and degraded. So when people try to do studies on things, it's, it's hard to show any, any benefit because um, depending on the preparation, they, they may lose a lot of their properties. It kind of comes back to it if you're trying to take in these um, vegetables. You need to eat as many raw as you can. Uh, you know, I go through, uh, I do believe that a raw diet is probably the best way you can eat. It's not necessarily the practic most practical way that you can eat. And sometimes people just have trouble with their microbes absorbing things like broccoli that are raw at first or ca cauliflower. Um, so just remember to not overcook things. And if you, you know, and, and add the mustard seed powder. So you really don't taste much when you add that powder to things. Um, and it activates the enzymes and you can get past it. And then you kind of wean yourself back to having some raw and some cooked uh, to get the full benefit of some of these vegetables. Most kids like to dip, dip things into, you know, so typically people dip French fries into ketchup. Um, ketchup has some vitamin C. I've known some people that probably their biggest source of vitamin C is, is the tomatoes in the, in the ketchup. But just think if you could get your kids to like mustard. And if you start them out early dipping in different sauces that contain some mustard, you're actually activating really healthy enzymes. So cutting up raw, raw foods such as broccoli, cauliflower into small pieces and starting to introduce dips that have some sort of a mustard base can be a really healthy habit to get kids into. And then they have a dip. And you can make, you know, a variety of different sauces and add some of the mustard powder into it. So if you were to make a carrot cheese sauce or potato cheese sauce and you had some mustard powder as well as turmeric in it, just think how much more healthy the nutrition would be for your family. Eating some of these vegetables raw also select for a much healthier gut microbiome or gut population. So um, you really can help your gut health by introducing uh, some of these vegetables. And again, if you can't tolerate them completely raw, work your way back uh, and then add the mustard seed powder to them. The other thing that people don't realize about broccoli is it has one of the highest amounts of protein uh, per cup, uh, you know, over three grams of protein per cup of broccoli. 
uh, compared to most other vegetables are in the one to two range per cup. Everything has protein. Everything has all the essential amino acids, just not in the same percentage as um, animal muscle. We get plenty of protein if we get plenty of calories. So if we get adequate calories to maintain our weight or as in the, in the, uh, if a child is growing, maintain growth and development, then you're going to get ad adequate protein. But it's a great source that packs so much in it. Um, you know, introducing these vegetables early to kids or, or introducing them in a way that they like them is, is so important. Today in nutrition class, we made a, a tomato sauce with harissa paste, which is a northern African paste made with a variety of spices, uh, including hot peppers. Um, we made it creamy, so if you're familiar with an Italian-type vodka sauce or cream sauce, this is a um, kind of a little different spice twist to that, but uh, we used silken tofu and blended that up with tomatoes, the harissa paste, and put that over pasta. It would be great to top it with basil, put it over a bed of spinach, and now you have beans associated with the tofu that's in your pasta sauce, and you would never know it, as far as your family would never know it. You could serve that, again, with cruciferous vegetables. You could throw some of that with that, uh, get your broccoli in that way, get spinach in, um, maybe even some cauliflower would go good with this dish. Uh, and this is a good way to get your tomatoes. You're getting vitamin C, uh, a lot of leucopenes. So it's a... It's fun to make dishes that have a lot of different things in them that have anti-cancer properties to them and have a lot of vitamins and nutrients in them as well. Sometimes it just comes down to thinking outside the box a little bit and um, you know, experimenting with some different, different spices. Um, we use caraway, cumin, garlic, uh, into this into the sauce today uh, and coriander seeds and it was uh, gave it really a different a different texture and different uh, uh, taste so I'd encourage you to experiment with some spices and then you you stop focusing on salt and fat so much uh, and um, you start to appreciate the, the taste of the different spices and then you can you know experiment with the, the, the benefits of them Next week, I'm going to have the pleasure of interviewing a woman that is uh, one of the oldest ninja warriors ever. At the age of 63, Jenny McCall started training for her first pull-up ever and now is doing uh, multiple pull-ups and ninja warrior uh, type activities and balance activities. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, having her on the podcast. She... Um, grew up as a dancer and then was an actor and then took a hiatus to raise her family. And now after she's retired, she's resumed acting. She was in the movie uh, Palms. So uh, I can't wait to have her on the podcast to talk about movement and strength training as we get older. So I think that'll be very motivating. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about our practice, uh, you can go on over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com and see what we have going there. You can email me at jamie at drdelaney with questions. I hope you enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Um, one of the things I thought, uh, you know, uh, people talk about hot dogs and cookouts. There's Don't forget to make carrot dogs. You could also make a corn dog with um, using corn masa to make the outside 
Um, we do C10 ribs, pasta salad, potato salad, all plant-based, big, large salads, kale salads. So um, don't be afraid to go to your Labor Day picnic because you're plant-based. Show um, just what kind of color you can bring with some of these various very healthy dishes and share it with a friend and we can help spread the word. So be safe and I'll talk to you soon.